Well, good morning. Fall Fest is coming. It's going to be a great event. We hope that you'll be there. Come and get some candy. Uh, it's fun to watch kids all dressed up, superhero costumes. Love it. So today we're going to start a new series, and it's called uh, David, A Man After God's Own Heart. There's only one person in the Bible that gets that tagline, and it's David. That's what God calls David, a man after God's own heart. If I were to ask you to guess who is the most mentioned person in the Bible, you might be you know, a good Sunday school kid and say, Jesus, and that would be the right answer. Jesus is the most mentioned person in the Bible. But did you know that David is the second most mentioned person in the Bible? One scholar pointed out that Abraham in the Old Testament, there's 14 chapters committed to him. He's also mentioned in the New Testament. Joseph, likewise, has 14 chapters and is mentioned also in the New Testament. Elijah has 10 chapters, also mentioned in the New Testament. David has 66 chapters chronicling his life story. His name is mentioned 59 times in the New Testament. With so much attention giving to this single character in the Bible, I think it'd be a good idea as to know why in the world God highlights David. What is it about David that we need to know and what do we need to learn from him? You know, I think it's clear. We, David, through all of the different circumstances and seasons of his life, the ups and downs, and he had some downs, demonstrated a heart after, uh, after God's, a man after God's own heart. You know, growing up, I never really thought of David as a, as a hero. I mean, I like Daniel and Joseph. No great disasters that are recorded in Scripture. The older I got, the, got the more I learned. I realized that, you know, they too, like everybody else, were flawed individuals. But David, David was an adulterer. You probably even know the name of the woman with whom he, had, he committed adultery. Do you know her name? You don't have to shout it out, but it might be Bathsheba. He was a murderer. How in the world can a man so flawed as David, who was an adulterer and a murderer, be called a man after God's own heart? Well, I think that question sort of uh, surfaces maybe a presupposition, and that is that there could be a man who was not flawed. And the Bible is clear on that one. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's you. That's me. No one is without sin. Religion has tried to reshape the narrative and lead us all to believe that we can be saved, accepted, and more loved by God if you and I can get our act together and we can, we can, make, we can live correctly and always be right. And the truth is, you can't always be right because God understands all have sinned, fall short of the glory of God. None of us are worthy. None of us can make ourselves worthy. You know what we need? We need a heart that understands that God seeks us and wants to give us grace and rescue in spite of our unworthiness. This is the story of David. David was a man whose heart was honest, repentant. He was faith-filled, 
fully surrendered to the will of God, patient to wait for God's timing, governed by obedience to God's command and his ways. And when he sinned, he confessed openly and honestly. Now we're going to contrast David today with the first king of Israel, and that is Saul. Now when Saul sinned, you know what he did? He was sorry he got caught. When the prophet came and told him, and he does, in 1 Samuel 13, Saul, uh, Samuel says to Saul, you've done foolishly. You've not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought for a man for, for himself a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be the commander over his people. Because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you, he, Saul was removed. And when Saul got caught, his repentance sounded like, well, at least come with me and make a sacrifice, because if you don't come with me, my standing in this community will be diminished. One time Saul was telling uh, Saul was telling Samuel, come with me. Samuel says, no, I will not go with you. I'm not going to go and act like everything is okay. And Saul held onto the hem of Samuel's garment to the point that he ripped the garment. Now that tells you something about the angry and abusive nature of a king who had been empowered but did not have a heart after God. But David, when he sinned and he did, he writes these incredible psalms where he grieves his sin. He laments the fact that he has lost the joy of his salvation. He longed to be restored in fellowship to God. He prays, create in me a clean heart. David was not saying, oh, get me out of this because I just got caught. No, no, he's like, God, I am grieved that I've done this to you. And I'm asking for you to forgive me and create in me a clean heart. That's a difference. Saul was not the king Samuel had hoped for. We're going to look at 1 Samuel 16. That's where the story is today. And it begins with this. Now the Lord said to Samuel, how long will you mourn for Saul, seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I am sending you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided myself a king among his sons. Now, clearly, that opening verse is linked to the chapter before, where Samuel grieves and weeps all night because the king he had anointed had honestly turned out so bad. God had given Saul the instruction to go and wipe out the Amalekites. Take no prisoners. Do not take their livestock. Everyone must die. I love how Tim Keller explains this story and puts it within the context of what God was accomplishing. I mean, 
This is a point where God's great judgment is going to be poured out on the Amalekites because the Amalekites were viciously wicked people, horribly oppressive, brutally, terribly brutal, guilty of all kinds of atrocities. God comes to Saul and he says, I want to wage war against them. I want this to be an act of justice, not imperialism. You know, imperialism is when kings go to battle, even though they say it's for justice, really most kings go to battle to increase their wealth and power. And that's what the king of of the Amalekites did. He was brutal against everyone in order to accrue more wealth and more power. He was an imperial king. And and God says he must be judged. Kind of like the Nazis had to be stopped. But God tells uh, Saul, I don't want you to be an imperial king, so you should not at all profit in any way from the battle you're about to win. Why do you take prisoners? You take prisoners for ransom. What is ransom? It's money, financial gain for the king. Why do you take the animals? Because that's sort of where they stored their wealth. And and God said, Saul, you will go as an agent of justice. I want you to kill all of them. But Saul doesn't do this. This is why God rejected him. Saul goes, he wins the war, but he keeps the king alive. You know, it is the credit to a conquering king to have a defeated king as his servant in his court. It increases prestige and power. Also, he kept the animals and when confronted by Samuel, Samuel said, oh, well, the, you know, the, the men around me, they wanted to keep these animals to use them for sacrifice. So he deflects. He doesn't confess and accept responsibility. He deflects and covers. This is a man whose heart is not after God. You know what? You and I, when we, when we sin, when we do something wrong, you know what we need to do? We need to just confess and own it and beg for mercy. That's what we need to do. But Samuel, he was manipulating and, and, I mean, Saul was manipulated. Samuel was grieved in his heart of hearts because of how Saul had turned out. I'm sure he remembers anointing Saul, the tall, wealthy, good-looking son of Benjamin. And his vision was, now Israel will have a king unlike the other kings in the world. In fact, his mother Hannah, after she begs God for a child and finally receives Samuel as her first child, she has a prophecy that's recorded in 1 Samuel chapter 2. Once again, Tim Keller points out that in her prophecy, she sees a king who makes who who takes care of the poor, who lifts up the lowly. Uh, This is a king who uses his power to help the broken, to restore those who who need restoration. This is the king, unlike any other king, who is a servant king, a sacrificial servant king, who loves so much he's willing even to die for his own people and whose people genuinely love him and are willing to die for him. You know who she's describing? She is describing the king who will come. 
the son of David. His name was Jesus. And Samuel is weeping in chapter 15 at the end of that because it's gone so wrong. Look at what Saul has done. He has become like the king of the Amalekites. He is an imperialistic king. I mean, look at, look at the reign of Saul. He's paranoid. He's self-focused. He's jealous. It's an awful time. And he weeps. The vision is lost. Saul has been put, put aside by God. And that's when God in chapter 16 comes to him and he says, how long will you mourn for Saul seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? I mean, God tells, tells the prophet, you're right. He's been rejected. He's not the one. How long are you going to stay in your grief? And then he says, get up. Fill your flask with oil and get ready to go anoint the next king because God is never beholding to the past and captured by the past. He always has a future. If you are stuck in the past and you are grieving the loss of something today and you, you, are, you are so grieving that you no longer move forward, you're not in a good spot. Now, it's never right to tell someone who's grieving to stop grieving I mean, grief is a natural emotional response when we lose a loved one. When we experience a failure, a hardship, a loss of any kind, grief is so real. You can't deny it. You must, you must engage grief. It, in fact, in Romans, this is what we're instructed to do. We're supposed to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. So, I mean, that's how we should respond. God is not... He is not condemning uh, Samuel for grieving. He's just saying to Samuel, um, you know what, Samuel? Uh, you, you've grieved enough. Come on, get up. I'm still here. I'm still God. I know how to take the next step forward. Go fill your flask with oil because I'm ready for the new king." You know, today, if you've experienced tremendous loss, God, I think, weeps with you. But God also has a next step for you. So that's the first thing. It was the, the king that he, he didn't turn out so good. But secondly, he sends Samuel in this chapter to go look for another king. And Samuel, he was instructed to go to Bethlehem and look for a king. Does that ring any bells for you? Have you ever heard of a king from Bethlehem? Do you think of any story where people went to Bethlehem looking for the newborn king? Have you ever heard of the wise men? The star of Bethlehem? You, you see, David is so important because... He's, he foreshadows the coming of the king who is flawless. Go to Bethlehem. And I want you to anoint one of Jesse's sons. 
Now, Saul immediately says, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. There you go. What kind of culture had been developed? You cross the king, you get killed. That's pretty severe. You, go, you know what we call that? We call that abuse of power. So God says, well, just take a heifer with you. And Now, that doesn't mean anything to us, right? But what he was basically saying was, you're going to go hold the worship service in Bethlehem. And while you're there, you're going to anoint the next king. We kind of understand it. To, we struggle to understand the role of the prophets. I mean, I do. But they had, a, they had a role in Israel, and they would go and show up in cities. And they would sometimes rebuke the leaders of the cities because they were prophets. Other times they would go and they would hold worship services. So in verse 4, when, when he arrived in Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled. Okay, trembled. They, they were afraid at his coming and said, do you come peaceably? He said, peaceably I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Sanctify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. Then he consecrated, consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. So this is what's going on. He's going to anoint somebody. First son comes. So it was, when they came, the sons of Jesse, he looked at Eliab, he was the eldest, military guy, and said, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. This guy is tall, handsome, looks good in uniform. And this is what the Lord says. The Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Do you know we are very affected by outward appearance? Do you know that about yourself? Did you know that Americans tend to elect more tall men to the presidency than short men? All you short guys out there, maybe that includes me, too bad for you. Why is Napoleon the celebrated emperor of the world? Because he was a little short guy. When I was 10 years old, we went to Paris and we actually went to Napoleon's tomb I didn't know what the big deal was. The guy was pretty amazing, and he was a short guy. That's what everybody knows about Napoleon. In fact, we started climbing on some tanks on the outside of the, of, the, of, the, of the monument area because there were some old war tanks there, so we started climbing up on these tanks only to have French security guards blowing whistles at us and yelling at us in French, which, of course, we didn't understand. We were like little American kids, all we could tell was they were going like this and telling us to go down. Well, we got, we got the sign language and we got off. Why is that significant? Because you know what? You and I are so conscious of outward appearance. Has there ever been a day when outward appearance is so celebrated? Have you ever heard of social media? 
Now, there's a lot of debate about the evils of social media, but there's also a lot of, a Harvard study said that there's a lot of benefit of social media. Frankly, I love social media because I get to see all of my friends who are in the Philippines. You know, by, by tonight, I, I get to see what they're doing tomorrow. When I, when, you know, it, and I get to keep up with friends I haven't seen for years. You know what, we, we love to like label anything totally bad or totally right. You know what, everything in the world that's been, that has been invented can either be used for, for good or for evil. I mean, and it always works out that way. However, it is true, especially among young people, that social media, the comparing of appearance to friends' appearances can make you feel better or worse. If you feel better than everybody else, guess what you are? You're proud. You know what? Pride goes before destruction. That's not a good thing. If you feel like you're not nearly as good looking as everybody else around you, then you feel like depressed. You know what the problem is? It's not how you look. It's the fact that you're comparing. Do you know God made you? He loves you. He, he likes you. He thinks you're awesome. But we, we love to get into this compare, compare game. Uh, you know, I, I actually have uh, friends that um, I've seen on social media that went to college with me, and I'm like, whoa. Now, who was that again? I mean, you add a few decades to somebody, and some of them I'm thinking, you don't even look like the person I used to know. What in the world happened? And you know, the funny thing is, they're all thinking the same thing about me. God says to Samuel, hey, listen, you know, the, the thing about what you're focusing on is uh, outward appearance. Remember, you thought Saul was so good looking and tall, and that didn't turn out so good. You know what I'm looking for this time? I'm looking at the heart. Hey, if you're looking to get married, please pick someone you find attractive. But be sure you check out the heart. Because I'm going to tell you this. The older you get, the more different you look. You get what I'm saying? I mean, you get much better looking. But the character of the heart over time is what makes someone exceedingly lovable. And he says to, to Samuel, don't make the same mistake. I, I'm looking at the heart. What, what I need is someone to lead my people who has my heart. Um, and this is such an interesting passage because the prophet stands there, they're assembled, they're ready to, to sacrifice and worship together and then they will eat together and he goes through son number one and God says, not him. Son number two, no. Son number three, 
uh-uh. Then number four comes. He's going, nope. Five, six, seven sons are brought before the prophet. The party's ready. And all seven are rejected. And then the prophet says this. Have you forgot a son? Well, yeah. Um, there's David, the youngest. He's out on the field watching the sheep. Can you imagine the emotional weight of David's life? When he knew he was the forgotten son, the overlooked son, the unimportant son, the son that really didn't matter, even to the point he didn't even get called to the party. David, out on the pastures of Bethlehem, it's a, it's a hilly area, saw an old guy in a profession going to his dad's house. People were assembling but he wasn't invited. That probably had happened before. That's right, I'm the one that doesn't matter. Which brings me to my third and last point. Samuel said to Jesse, this overlooked, the son that was overlooked, but chosen. Samuel said to Jesse, send and bring him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. So he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy, with bright eyes and good looking. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is the one. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward, so Samuel arose and went to Ramah. You can just imagine. David is late to the occasion because they didn't care. Have you ever felt overlooked, unimportant, marginalized? Have you ever been made to feel like you just don't matter? This is the way David lived. And what did David do to get through that life? I'm going to tell you what he did. He learned to be in the presence of God. And he wrote worship songs. You know the great psalms that we read, most of, uh, half of them are attributed to David himself. Can you imagine? Where, where, he, where had he been writing these? He wrote them as a young boy that nobody cared about or thought was worth anything as he watched the sheep. David found his strength in the God whom he served and sought after. David wrote the best psalm we know, right? 
Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Where, where did he come up with that? Because David said, you know what? Nobody else cares what's going on in my life, but I know God does. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Psalm 23, he describes the heart of God. One day the king of kings came, his name was Jesus, and he told a story about a man who had a hundred sheep, went out to pasture and brought them all home that night. And when he got home, he counted 99 were there. Oh, one's missing. So what does he do? Now, you know, this shepherd knew each of the sheep individually. I mean, I've always been pretty content to get 99 out of 100 of, of most tests I ever took. But not if the one represents a sheep you know and love. And he would leave the fold and go out into the dark, into the wilderness, and look for the sheep until he found them. And this is the heart of God. God's going to come looking for you. No matter who you are or what you've done, this good shepherd is looking for you. If you would just pay attention. And the point of Jesus' story was that this is the heart of God. He's going to find you. He's going to bring you back. Why? Because when nobody else thinks you matter, the good shepherd knows you do. And this king, like the good shepherd David, when the lion and the bear grabbed one of his sheep, runs after the lion, now that takes some courage, don't you think? And the bear, and defeats the lion and the bear to rescue that sheep. This is the tenacity of the good shepherd. And David, out on the hills, learned that the most important relationship he had was really not his dad or mom or his brothers, but God himself. And God would never give up on him. God would be his strength. God would be his shelter. God would be his help in time of need. And while he was thinking he was just learning how to watch sheep and do a pretty good job, what he didn't realize was that God was training the next king who would look at his people like a shepherd who would serve them and help them. And that's who God is. He has come. He has come to help us, to rescue us. David becomes the king because in his marginalization, he turned his heart to God and that's where his heart remained through all the seasons of his life, even his ups and his downs, his successes and his failures. And that's what we get to study over the next few weeks is the remarkable heart of David whose heart is really after God and that makes all the difference in the world.
I wonder if we could all pray today and say, God, I want you to help me have a heart for you. That'd be a good prayer for you to pray right now. God, I want to have a heart for you. Maybe you're feeling invisible and overlooked and like you don't matter. But in a prayer, you could say, God, I, I, I feel that way, but I, I do believe and I know that you are present and that your love for me is unshakable and that you are constantly at work in my life and I matter because you made me and I really do belong to you. Maybe some of you have never accepted Jesus Christ to be your Lord and Savior. And when you think about dying, you're scared because you don't know what in the world's going to happen. And there's not a lot of peace or security in, in that thought. But then there's the story that Jesus came and went to a cross. And he paid for our sin. And he died with his power and majesty. He dies for us to save us and he rose again and he says if you just believe in me I will be the resurrection you will have a resurrection this is who we will love throughout all of eternity a God who died for us maybe the day you need to pray I'm going to ask you to bow your head right now and just pray with me 